thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at this very important section on spiritual gifts, and we noted that the purpose of chapters 12 through 14 isn't to give us all the details about each individual spiritual gift, but really to lay down eight vital principles for us to understand about how we should use spiritual gifts. And so far, we've looked at the first six principles, how to judge the giver, the purpose, unity, the need, and love in using spiritual gifts. And this morning, we're going to look at the final two principles that Paul shares with us, which focuses on our heart towards spiritual gifts and the proper function of spiritual gifts. And so let's see what we can learn here from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 uh, about spiritual gifts, starting in verse 1, says this, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, interestingly here, Paul starts chapter 14 by saying, pursue love. Now, if you remember in chapter 12, he gives us five great principles about spiritual gifts, but he ends it by saying, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And so chapter 12 ends with, there's a more excellent way, which is the way of love. And that's what chapter 13 is all about, love and and using spiritual gifts, love and, and life in general. And so we have chapter 12 kind of pointing to this reality of of love being more important. And now we come to chapter 14, and it's looking back. And the first thing it says is is pursue love. So before you start pursuing spiritual gifts, make sure you're pursuing love, because as we looked at last week, without love, then spiritual gifts are nothing. Uh, If you don't have love associated with them, then they don't profit anyone anything. And so you have chapter 12, chapter 14. With both of them, we have seven great principles, but they're kind of glued together with chapter 13, which is the most important principle of all, which is the principle of love. And so he starts with pursue love, and then Paul goes on to say, and, so once you're pursuing love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So it's great to desire spiritual gifts, and we should want spiritual gifts for the right reasons, but Paul gives a specific gift that he says you should desire, desire to prophesy. Now, the Corinthians had a great desire for spiritual gifts. So that, that was a good thing. But as we see here uh, in these uh, two, three chapters, you know, the thing that they really emphasized the most, what they had the greatest desire for was the gift of tongues. Uh, and Paul is telling us, you know what, the, the greatest desire, the one that we should be focused more on is not tongues, it is prophecy. And he's going to give uh, spend the next several verses revealing the difference between tongues and prophecy, which will help us to understand why in a church setting, prophecy is more valuable than tongues is. And so let's see what we can learn. He's going to share a lot about these differences. Uh, and so if you've ever had questions about tongues or prophecy, uh, this is a, the chapter of the Bible that kind of explains it the most, starting in verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort 
to men. So Paul starts off here, he's contrasting these two gifts. The gift of tongues is contrasted with the gift of prophecy, and he wants us to understand the difference between these two gifts. And so I put together this little uh, diagram here to, to help you understand. And so first, let's look at what Paul says of the gift of tongues. He says, those who speak in a tongue do not speak to men, they speak to God. So the gift of tongues, notice the direction. It's not God speaking to us, it's us speaking to God. This is something that is very important. So I want you to notice on this diagram the arrow, because the arrow is pointing from who is speaking and who they're speaking to. So with tongues, it's men that are speaking, and they're speaking to God. You'll see it's opposite with the prophecy. Now, sadly, people in the church today have disregarded this verse concerning tongues, and it's led to a big misunderstanding understanding about what the purpose of tongues is, because a lot of people feel it's the spiritual language for me to speak to you, uh, that it's man to man instead of man to God, that I'm directing this to you as other people instead of directing this to God. But Paul makes very clear, this isn't man to man, this is man to God or person to person, person to God. And so this is the way that uh, this is taking place. So tongues is always addressed to God and in communication with God. It's not addressed to people and in communication with people. Now, another thing that Paul reveals about the gift of tongues is that no one understands what this person is saying. That they're speaking in this language that, you know, the rest of the church doesn't know. And so because they don't know, they don't understand what is being said. And so the second thing important to note about tongues is it's not understandable, which you'll see there on your diagram. So it's a communication from people to God, and it's a communication that is not understandable. Those are two very important things that Paul reveals to us about tongues. Now, prophecy is basically the opposite in this regard, that it is from God to people. So tongues is from people to God. Prophecy is from God to people. Uh, and notice also that prophecy is understandable. Uh, when you prophesy, you speak edification, exhortation, and comfort to people. The only way you're going to be edified, exhorted, and comforted is if you actually understand what's being said. You know, if someone just kind of says something that you have no clue of what they're saying, you're not going to be edified, you're not going to be exhorted, you're not going to be comforted. And so prophecy, it does these things, but it does them because it's understandable. But I think it's also important to know it. it's not just understandable, but prophecy, you know, in the characteristics of itself is very positive. I mean, look at these three things that Paul lists. Uh, edification is building up. It's a construction term, speaking of being built up in this context, being built up in the Lord. So a word of prophecy will build people up, not tear them down. Uh, and even if it's a, a rebuke from God, which we see in the Old Testament of, you know what, you are sinning and you need to get right, that's still building you up in the sense of saying, hey, I want to see you change. I'm revealing to you the problem that you have. That's still an important thing for, for us to hear. Exhortation is encouragement. It's like the speech you get from the, the coach in the locker room before the big game of trying to get you to use your potential and play to the best of your ability. This word of prophecy, it's going to encourage people. It's not going to discourage them. Comfort has the idea of not only consoling, but also strengthening. It doesn't just cry with someone hurting it. It's there to wrap their arms around them and to strengthen them and to hold them and to be there with them. So a word of prophecy will strengthen, not weaken someone. So tongues is a gift of God that he gives, and it's people 
speaking to God that's not understandable. Prophecy is God speaking to people, and it is very understandable. So now that hopefully we understand the main differences between these two gifts, Paul's now going to go on to say why we should desire prophecy over tongues. Notice what he tells us in verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, hopefully you remember what the purpose of the church is, because that was one of our main principles. The purpose of the church is to profit, to edify others. That's why we do spiritual gifts. That's why we have these things, to profit and edify others. Now, I want you to note in our diagram here that tongues, we're told, edifies the person using it, but prophecy edifies the church. This is another big difference between these two gifts. Now, the reason that uh, the gift of tongues only edifies the person speaking is because what they're saying, no one else understands. Uh, and what they're saying is really their spirit speaking to God. And so, you know, no one knows what's going on. So it's only edifying them. It's not edifying the rest of the church. But it does edify them because, you know, it's on their behalf. They're praising, they're speaking, they're directing, you know, these prayers to God. They might not understand what's being said, but, you know, it benefits them because it's coming from them to the Lord uh, on their behalf. But everyone else, they don't hear, they don't, well, they don't hear, but they don't understand. Uh, and it's not on their behalf, so there's no benefit for them. I mean, it'd be kind of like if a person from China visited our church this morning and we finished the service with a time of prayer and they just start praying a wonderful prayer of praise to God, but they do it in their native tongue of Chinese. And so we're sitting here and then we hear someone speaking in Chinese. We don't have a clue what they're saying. They're being totally blessed as they just praise God for all he is and how wonderful he is. And then they finish and they've been blessed. But we're not because we don't have a clue what they've been saying. You know, we don't know if there was good or bad. We don't know because we don't speak the language. Well, maybe some of you do, but um, that's kind of the point here is tongues only edifies the person speaking, not the rest of the church, because no one understands what they're saying. Now, the gift of prophecy is very different. The whole church is edified. Why? Because prophecy is something that everyone can understand what's being said. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse five. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may be edified. Now, don't miss something here, because with this back and forth of tongues versus prophecy and the differences and what's more valuable for a church gathering, some people have concluded that Paul is saying, hey, tongues are bad, steer clear of them, never use them, they're not good. He's not saying that at all. Notice you know, how he starts, I wish you all spoke in tongues. He wouldn't say that of something that he thought was bad. So he clearly thinks tongues are valuable. I wish everyone had it. I wish everyone was able to use it, but... Within the setting of the church, notice he says, hey, but even more that you prophesied. It's great that you speak in tongues. It's a valuable gift, but even more valuable within the, the church setting is the gift of prophecy. And the reason why is because we just looked at tongues edifies only the individual where prophecy edifies the whole church. And I want you to note the context here because chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all about, you know, the body being together when we're together like we are now and the purpose of gifts within that. And so prophecy is so much more valuable because it does edify the whole church. But if you were just by yourself, 
and you were using gifts. Tongues would be very valuable because it's a, a communication between you and God. Prophecy wouldn't be valuable at all because you would have no one to speak to. It would just be you and God. Uh, and so he's not saying tongues is a bad thing. He's saying within the context of being gathered together as a group of believers, the goal should be to edify. And so if you can't understand what's being said, that's not edifying. It's not profitable. And that's why prophecy, when you can understand it, becomes so much better in that regard. Now, there is a way in which tongues can be beneficial, which tongues can be edifying for the whole body. And Paul tells us what that is. He says, unless he interprets the tongue so that the church may receive edification. So, you know, if someone speaks in a tongue and none of us know it, but yet then someone interprets that language that we don't know in a English so that we do know it, now all of a sudden we've heard what's being said and we can hear their communication with God, their praise to God, whatever it is that they were communicating. And now we can all be profited and edified because now we understand what was being said. But if it doesn't have an interpretation, it doesn't profit us. And if it does have an interpretation, it will profit us. And so now Paul is going to share with us the importance of tongues being interpreted. Since we're not profited unless it is interpreted, he's going to share several different examples and really drive home this point of why this interpretation of tongues is so important to be used when tongues were being used. And he's kind of harping on this because the Corinthians were abusing this gift, which we see a lot in the church world today, where it's just a bunch of people speaking in tongues all at once. There's no interpretation. There's no benefit to the body as a whole because no one knows what's being said. And that's kind of what was going on there. And so he wants to clarify, hey, if anyone does speak, make sure there's an interpretation. Why? Because that's the only way the body is going to be benefited because they won't understand it unless they have that. And so he's going to kind of build this case for us. Notice what he says in verse six. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying or by teaching? When Paul came to churches, he knew, I want to profit you guys. I want to benefit you guys. And I recognize if all I do is come and speak in tongues to you, none of you are going to be profited. I'm just going to be standing up here saying things that none of you are going to understand. And so how is that going to benefit you? So when I come to you, uh, my goal is for you to be profited. So I'm going to speak things that you're going to understand. So I'll speak by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, by teaching, all of those things which are clear in a language you understand in a way that will benefit you from it. Verses 9, 7 through 9, he's going to continue this. Give some more examples. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, whether they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So here Paul gives some examples of musical instruments and how you need to hear a distinction in sounds. They need to be clear so that you can understand what's being played. Uh, now, you know, musical instruments, you need a certain pitch, certain notes, certain beat. And when you hear that, you listen to the radio, you listen to, you know, your iPod, you hear a certain song. All you need to do is listen to a little bit of music and the way in which it's played, the notes that are played, boom, you know what it is. Now, sometimes you go on YouTube and you see people trying to play certain songs. 
songs, and you're kind of like, what is that song? And it takes you the whole time because they're not doing a very good job of playing the right notes, hitting the right chords, you know, singing in the right key. Uh, my girls, when they were younger, they, they loved to bang on our piano, um, but they didn't have a clue of how to play. And they also loved to bang on my cajon, and they didn't have a clue on how to play. And for them, they're thinking, this is so wonderful, Daddy. I'm making up this song. Now, for me, it wasn't so wonderful. It was just kind of noise in the background. Uh, but, you know, it's sweet to watch them do it. But there's no song there. There's no understanding of what they're playing because they don't have a clue what they're doing. Jenny's now teaching them to play the piano. And they're actually able to play some songs that I can say, oh, I know what that song is because you're hitting the right notes. Uh, and it works well. So Paul gives an example similar to this. And he talks about, you know, blowing trumpets in order to prepare for battle. He says, for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Now, during that time, you would have people in the city, you know, and if they saw enemies and coming to, you know, destroy, they would blow this trumpet sound. It was a very specific sound coming from a trumpet, and everyone knew what that sound was. Get ready for battle. And Paul's saying is, hey, what if you got a guy who grabs a trumpet, doesn't have a clue of how to play the trumpet, the enemy's coming, he blows something into it, this, you know, sound comes out, but no one has a clue, like, what is that? Is it dinner time? I mean, what is that supposed to mean? Because it's definitely not the trumpet sound for get ready for battle. And so he's saying, unless it's blown in a way that people understand, then people aren't going to know, hey, the enemy's coming, we need to prepare for it. Uh, and so the point with both of these examples is the importance of understanding the sounds that you hear. And that's why he says in verse 9, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. And so he's just bringing up this point. Hey, when you speak, when you use your tongue, you want to say things that people understand, or you're kind of just like speaking into the air. It's just no one understands what's being said, and how is that going to benefit or profit anyone? Now in verses 10 and 11, Paul's going to share another example of why speaking in an understandable way is so important. You can see he's harping on this issue because obviously there in Corinth, they didn't get it. And so it's example after example, hoping to drive the point home to them. Notice what he says. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. You know, Paul gives a very practical example here. And any of you who have done mission work or travel to other countries where they speak a language that you don't, you've experienced that kind of awkward situation. You know, I travel all over Europe and, you know, I would often come to someone who doesn't speak English and I don't speak their language and you can't communicate and you're trying to. And sometimes you really want to because you're at a restaurant and you want to order or you really need to use the restroom and you're trying to find out where one is. And, you know, you're trying to do hand motions and charades and you can't communicate with them. And so it's a frustrating thing when you're with someone and they don't speak your language and you don't speak their language. But the bottom line is no one profits from that conversation because you just get frustrated because you don't know what's being said. And in the same way, Paul is just using that as another practical example of why when we're in a church service, it's so important to use words that people can understand so that they will be built up and blessed as opposed to a language that they don't understand and therefore will not profit them in that. Well, now with this reality, with these examples of the importance of speaking in an understandable way, Paul's going to give us a challenge here in verses 12 through 14. Notice what he says. 
Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Here's one of the main things that Paul wants us to understand when it comes to spiritual gifts. The, the Corinthians were very zealous for spiritual gifts, and he wasn't saying that in a negative way, that that's a good thing. It's good that you want them. It's good that you're zealous for them. If you have the right heart in it, they kind of didn't. But, you know, today we have a lot of people in the church world that are zealous for spiritual gifts, and, and that zeal is good if it's directed in the right way. And that's why Paul says, hey, zeal's good if... Notice what he says, it's for the edification of the church. If you have zeal for these gifts for the purpose of edifying others, all that is good. But if your zeal is for another purpose, then that is not good. And this is why Paul starts the chapter saying, desire spiritual gifts. That's a good thing, but especially that you prophesy. Why? Because that's one of the gifts that will communicate something that the whole church can be profited and edified with. And since our zeal for spiritual gifts should be for the edification of the church, if you have the gift of tongues, Paul says in verse 13, therefore let him speak in a, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Since the whole goal is we want to edify and that only comes when people understand. If you have a tongue and you pray and God gives you that tongue, then after you give it, he's saying, you know what? You should be praying that God gives you an interpretation of that as well, because the only way people are going to be benefited by it is if it's interpreted so that they can understand it. And that should be the goal. It should be, I don't just want to speak in tongues just to speak in tongues so that people can say, oh, wow, look at that guy. No, I want to speak in tongues and have it interpreted so that the body can be built up and edified. Well, now Paul is going to conclude this point here uh, in verses 15 through 19. What is the conclusion then? I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all. Yet, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So since tongues is not understandable, and because of that it won't edify people because they don't know what's being said unless it's interpreted, Paul says, well, well, what's the conclusion then? To all that I've just been saying, all these examples, you know, what am I ultimately wanting you to take from this? And he says, well, here it is. I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing in the Spirit, and I will also sing in understanding. So notice the conclusion isn't, well, just get rid of tongues. I mean, if we don't have tongues, we don't have to worry about it. Those are bad. You know, everyone will just be benefited if we don't use it. No, he says, I'm going to do both. Since, you know, I'm going to use tongues, but I'm also going to speak in a way that is understandable. You know, so he's saying you need the balance here. You need to recognize that that both are good uh, within the body. But ultimately, things that are said that are understandable are the ones that are more edifying. And in verse 18 and 19, he says, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Tongues aren't bad. Or Paul would never say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. I thank God I do this bad thing that none of you do. No, I thank God about it because it's great. Tongues are great, but he says something that's very important. And Paul reveals something here. In his personal life, 
He spoke in tongues more than anyone. And he utilized that gift in his personal life. But when it came to the church service, when he was gathered together with other believers, he did not use tongues as frequently. In his personal life, man, I use it all the time. It's a wonderful gift between me and God and praying between God. But when I'm with other believers, this is a gift that I don't use nearly that much because people don't understand it unless it's interpreted. And so what I do is I speak words that people can understand. And he says something very significant. In the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. You know, it's better for me just to say five words that you can understand and be blessed by and profited by than me to sit up here all day long and speak 10,000 words in a tongue that you have no clue about because you're not going to be benefited and profited from that. And so he makes very clear within the context of a church service, Speaking words that people can understand will edify them. Speaking words that people can't understand is not going to uh, unless it's interpreted. And so he just wants to clarify that. And that is why prophecy is more beneficial in a church service than tongues, because it edifies everyone. Well, now Paul's going to share with us why tongues can be a problem for unbelievers. He's saying, you know what, for believers, you know, there's some issues, but there's even an issue with Unbelievers, notice what he tells us in these next verses, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, men with other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all of that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophesying, excuse me, is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So Paul starts off by telling the Corinthian believers to not be children in their understanding, instead to be mature. When it came to spiritual gifts, the Corinthians, in many respects, when it came to the understanding of that, were children. They were immature in their understanding, and it showed in the fact that they weren't doing what God had wanted them. So he's saying, hey, your understanding needs to be mature, specifically in spiritual gifts. You need to grasp what God wants for you in that, because they were kind of missing that. And I think, you know, that's a good word for us today. Um, but then Paul shares an Old Testament example, he says, in the law it's written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, and this is a very interesting portion of scripture. Isaiah, in in, uh, chapter 28, he's rebuking the nation of Israel for their sin, uh, and he's sharing with them, there's going to be a judgment from God that's going to come, because not only are you in sin, but you have not repented. God has warned you, he sent prophets who shared with you, but now, interestingly, the prophets who have come, they have spoken in the native language of the Israelites, which was Hebrew. So you got people to come and they spoke to you in a way that you could understand in Hebrew and they've warned you to turn from your sin and you have not. And so now there is going to be a judgment from God and the judgment is you're going to hear the voice of men with other tongues and other lips. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Assyrians were allowed to come and conquer Israel, take them captive and remove them from their land. And guess what? The Assyrians did not speak a language that the Israelites understood. And so you have this people who invade and now they're speaking to you and demanding of you and removing you from your land. And they're speaking a language that you don't know. And this was part of God's judgment because the nation of Israel did not listen to the prophets and turn from their sin. Now, oftentimes when God would bring judgment, the nation of Israel would recognize their sin. They would repent. They would turn back. 
But sometimes they didn't, and this is one of those instances that we're told, and yet for all that, even when the Assyrians come and they move you from the land, they will not hear me. I'm still talking, I'm still revealing, I'm still saying turn from your sin, and they're still stubborn, and they're still just doing it. Uh, and so Isaiah chapter 28, this tongue was a sign of judgment upon the Israelites because foreigners spoke in this unknown tongue, invaded the country, and took them captive. And so, you know, this is a sign, and he's going to reveal that it's also a sign for us today, and it's quite significant to look at what he says in verses 23 through 25 of how it's a sign both to believers and to unbelievers. Verse 23 says, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his hearts are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So Paul gives kind of two different scenarios here. He starts with, hey, if an unbeliever comes into our church, and let's imagine this this morning, you know, an unbeliever is here, and all of us at the same time are speaking in tongues. And so everyone is speaking in a different language. No one has a clue what anyone else is saying. And here's a person, their first time in church, and they're sitting around looking at this. And I mean, what do you think? I mean, if that was you, how would you be responding? What would you be thinking? Well, Paul tells us what he thinks they would think. He says, if an unbeliever is in your church and you're all speaking in tongues, their response is going to be, you're out of your mind. You guys are crazy. What's going on here? I mean, I'm, I can see why people would uh, feel that way if they came into uh, an experience like that. Now, Paul says, if an unbeliever comes into a church and all of us are prophesying. Now, and he gives something specific because he, he talks about, you know, that they would have things about themselves revealed. So let's just imagine we're all prophesying, but God is actually speaking to each one of us about that specific person. So they're sitting down and all they're hearing of things that no one can know. And someone's saying this to him, another person saying that to him, another person saying that to him. And they're kind of blown away. Like, how does it that these people know these things about my life and what I'm doing and what I'm going through? And so, you know, how do you think someone will respond coming and listening to something that they could understand directed towards them about things that no one else could know? And Paul says, if that takes place, the secrets of their heart will be revealed. They will be convinced and convicted by the prophecy and worship God and tell others God is truly among you. They're going to come in and think, obviously God is real. How is it that people can know this? I'm convicted of my sin. I'm convicted of my lifestyle. I'm convinced of God and his reality. And I'm going to tell everyone God is among that place. I mean, you go there because these people know something happening where God is speaking. So Paul reveals tongues. It's going to cause unbelievers in the church to think you're crazy. And prophecy is going to cause them um, to think that this is something that God is doing. So this is another reason why prophecy is something that's more desirable within a church service than tongues, because not only with believers what it does, but also what it does with unbelievers. Now, the reason that Paul has spent so much time telling us about the difference between tongues and prophecy is because he wants us to pursue gifts that edify others, not just ourselves. This isn't just about tongues and prophecy. It's about really tongues and, and all spiritual gifts. That's why he goes on to say in verse 26, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. And then notice what he says, let all things be done for edification. So it's not just 
Prophecy edifies. He's saying, you know, whenever you come together, whatever gift you're using, whether it's teaching or interpretation or in prophecy or, or revelation, whatever it is that God is speaking through you, what should be the goal? What should be the purpose? Why should you be doing it? Well, he ends with very important statement. Let all things be done for edification. That is the goal. That is why we should be using our gifts so that people could be edified and knowing that if I speak in tongues and no one can interpret it, that no one's going to be edified. That shouldn't be the focus of the service. I should be using gifts that are actually going to edify and build up others. Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor and commentator, said this about people who don't let all things be done for edification. Spiritual self-indulgence is a monstrous evil. Yet we see it all around. On Sunday, these loafers must be well fed. They look out for such sermons as will feed their soul. The thought does not occur to these people that there is something else to be done besides feeding. You know, spiritual self-indulgence is such a huge problem in the church world today. This focus of it's all about me and what I can get and how I can feed myself spiritually and I could care less about how God uses me to impact others, to edify others, to bless others. I come for me and what I can take and what I can get and I'm not coming to give and to serve and to offer my gifts for what God can use. And so when you come to spiritual gifts with this selfish mindset, with this heart that says it's all about me and me being edified, that's not right. We need to come with a heart that says, I have a desire to be used by God to edify others. So the seventh main principle, vital principle, Paul wants us to understand when it comes to spiritual gifts is the kind of heart that we should have towards the gifts. The heart desire we should have for spiritual gifts is to edify and profit others. This is so important. Obviously, it goes right with the purpose. But the purpose and the heart are hand in hand. And so you got to ask, you know, what's the heart desire? Why do I even pray for this gift? Why do I even want to use this gift? Why do I ask that God would give me this? Is it all about me? Because I want people to say, look at that guy who has the gift of prophecy or the gift of healing or the gift of tongues. Is it about something that is selfish and, oh, look at how this is going to benefit me and edify me and encourage me? Or is it, Lord, I want this gift Because I want to encourage others. I want to bless others. I want a word of prophecy so that I can share it and people can be encouraged and they can be edified and they can be comforted. That's my desire. That's my goal in this. And so what is your heart? If it's all about you, it's not the way it should be. If it's all about others, that's where God wants us to be. Well, now Paul's going to finish this section on spiritual gifts with the final principle, the proper function of spiritual gift. And this is an area where it is so abused within churches that are kind of more charismatic. This is a very, very important thing that God has a proper function for gifts and the way in which they should be um, used within a church. And so let's see what he has to say. Uh, verse 27 says this, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So Paul starts off with, okay, here is the proper way to use tongues, exercise tongues in a church service. And if you don't do this, then you are improperly exercising tongues. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. So notice this. 
At the most, in a church service, three people should speak in tongues. So that's the first thing that he lays aside, that that's the max. And those that do speak in tongues, they make sure they need to do it in turn, not at the same time. It's not that all three of them stand up and start blurting it out at the same time. You take turns, and he says, after each person is done, you wait for it to be interpreted. Why? Because it doesn't do any good for the rest of the body unless it is. And so if there's no interpreter, he tells you, be quiet, keep silent, okay? And so this is something that is so important for us to understand. And I think it's important to realize what Paul is saying here, that first, be quiet if it's not your turn. Someone else is already speaking in tongues, then if you got one from the Lord, great. Just wait until they're done and it's interpreted, and then you can speak. And the other is, be quiet. If someone speaks in tongues and you realize there's no one there with the gift of interpretation because that wasn't interpreted, well then, be quiet. Don't use that gift because you realize it's not going to benefit anyone. Now, the fact that Paul says, wait your turn and be silent, reveals that the person with the gift of tongues has control over whether or not they will speak it. And this is something that a lot of people will just make this claim of, oh, the Holy Spirit just overpowered me and kind of possessed me like demons do. See, demon possession, they control you and they force you to do things. Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He gives you gifts and he says, here, but it's your choice whether or not you're going to use it. It's your choice of whether or not you're going to offer it up to the body for their benefit. He does not force you. And so some who say, well, the Holy Spirit just overpowered me and i sorry, I just had to do it right in the middle of everything and it didn't matter that it was out of order because it wasn't my fault because I had no control over it. Well, if you have no control over it, Paul would never say, do it in turn and be quiet if it's not in turn and be quiet if there's no interpreter. Well, then you he couldn't say that because you would say, well, how am I going to be quiet if the Holy Spirit's the one forcing me? He's not. You have control. Now, we noted back in chapter 12, it's the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual gifts as he wills and when he wills. And so he gives you the gift. You don't get to choose which one you get. He gives it when he wants to. But here's the reality. When he does give it to you, whatever gift it will be, when it happens, you now have control over whether or not you're going to use it. Now, this is something important to realize as well, because oftentimes the reason we don't use gifts is because of a bad reason. I don't really care about edifying people. I don't really want to be used by God today. I just kind of hear for myself. And so God gives you a gift, and yet you don't really want to use it because you have the wrong motivation within it, and so you don't. And so there's a reason that's bad when we don't use gifts, but there's a reason that's good when we don't use gifts, and this is what Paul is saying here, is that there is order that needs to happen. And so if you have this gift of tongues, God gives it to you, it's in the middle of the service, you know, and you're just like, oh, I really need to speak this. Well, there's a proper time for that. And it's not when someone else is speaking in tongues. And it's only if there's an interpreter. And if those aren't happening, then you can make a choice to be silent and not use that gift. And that's a good thing because it stays within the order that God has designed. And so don't buy into this concept that you know, you're just overcome and you're forced to and you have to. No, you clearly have the ability to use what you've been given or not and choose to use it at the proper time that God has ordained and established. And so I grew up in a church where 
There was really no guidelines with spiritual gifts, but especially the gift of tongues. And throughout the service, you know, my dad or someone else would be teaching and people would just stand up and start blurting in tongues. And then another person, and sometimes it'd be five or 10 people and they would just go on for 10 minutes or so. And then they sit down and oftentimes there's no interpretation, which you probably can't interpret 10 of them at once anyway. And so it would just be so distracting and so weird. And I would never want to invite anyone because my brother and I just thought, I mean, this is just so like Paul said, crazy. Uh, and, you know, that's not the way that God designed it. That is not the way it was meant to be. And it's just an abuse of how God has set up the way in which this gift should be used. Well, now Paul's going to say, hey, that's how you properly use tongues. Two or three of the most, there must be an interpretation or don't do it. But now he's going to say, hey, prophecy, it also has a proper function. So let's see what he has to say about prophecy, verses 29 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can only, for you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So just like with tongues, Three at the most. You got three people who can speak in tongues, but you got three people who can prophesy during a church service. And just like with tongues, guess what? It is one at a time. Now with tongues, you wait for an interpretation. With prophecy, you wait to judge the prophecy. See, someone's going to stand up and ultimately say, thus says the Lord. God has a, given me a word for this church. When they say it, we don't just accept it right away and be like, great, that's from God. What we do is we judge to see whether it truly is from God. And that's why he says we judge it. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There is a reality that false prophets come into the church and they say, oh, I got a word from God for you guys. And they say something that's not true. And so if we aren't taking what Paul says and putting it into practice of, wait, we need to judge this before we accept this, people could say things that are very unbiblical. Obviously, an extreme example would be someone says, thus says the Lord, Jesus is not God. He's not the way to heaven. Be blessed today. I mean, we would know this isn't true. Why? Because we take every prophecy and the way that we judge it is we bring it back to God's word. And we see, does this contradict the word of God? And if it does, we know that God wouldn't do that. So we know this isn't from God because God wouldn't say something that goes against what his word says. And so with prophecy, we need to have this order one at a time. Let people judge. And if we judge and say that's definitely from the Lord, we're all blessed. If we judge and say that's not from the Lord, we're protected. But either way, it's just one at a time. But notice what he says, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. It's not just for the sake of, you know, hey, we want to judge it. It's also for the sake of let people listen and kind of soak in so they can learn and be encouraged. If God is really speaking and he has a word for us, we want to take time to listen, to judge, but also if that is from God, to be blessed by that, to be encouraged by that. And that's really one of the main goals of sharing your spiritual gift is so that people can learn, so that people can be encouraged. You know, if we spoke in a hundred tongues or a thousand prophecies and at the end of the day, people weren't learning and being encouraged, then we've missed the point. You know, that that's kind of 
defeating everything. And, and in a church service, you know, God might choose to cause learning and encouragement and edification without using tongues or prophecy. He might use other means to do that. And so we need to be careful not to judge whether or not a service is successful or whether or not a service is good based on that. Ultimately, are people learning? Are people being edified? Are people growing in their relationship with the Lord? That should be one of the bigger criteria that we're looking to. So tongues, it has a very proper order. Prophecy has a proper order. And the reason that God has established proper order is told to us in verse 33. Notice what Paul tells us about God. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You know, having order when exercising spiritual gifts, it's important. Why? Because God's a God of order. He is not the God who is the author of confusion. So within churches, and I grew up in one that's very charismatic, the gifts were a huge focus, but there was a lot of disorder, a lot of confusion. You can know that is not the Spirit of God moving. The Spirit of God is not, a, he's not the author of confusion. And they'd had people barking like dogs and slithering like snakes and doing all sorts of weird and wacky wild things. And they're saying, oh, this is so of Jesus. This is so of the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. God does not move like that. He is a God of order. He is not a God of confusion. Uh, and so we need to be careful with some of the things that we're claiming to be of the Lord, which completely go against what he has revealed in his word. So those with the gift of tongues, notice we're told, be silent and only use your gift at the proper time to keep God's established order. For those of you who have prophecy, you be silent, you only use your gift at the proper time because you want to keep God's established order. Now with that in mind, Paul is going to tell another group, be silent Only say something when you're using it in the proper order, because if not, it's going to be problematic to the church. And he's going to address women within the Corinthian church who were causing disorder, just like those speaking in tongues in the wrong way and those prophesying in the wrong way were causing disorder. Let's see what he has to say in verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now, there are a lot of negative feelings towards these two verses, mainly from women. And I understand at first reading why someone can conclude what a lot of people do conclude. But there's several reasons why these negative feelings don't actually have to be negative, because they're misunderstanding what this verse or these verses are actually communicating. And I think the first thing that is a problem is this verse is often taken out of its context. It's just brought out and say, see, the Bible says, women, you got to be quiet, silent in the church. And they just, they don't take it within the context of what's said right before it, right after it. And as we've just noted, Paul has been laying out this thing of, hey, there's a lot of groups, men and women, those who speak in tongues, guess what? He says, be silent if you're not doing it in the proper order that God has established. Those who prophesy, wonderful gift, you know what? Be silent if you're not doing it in the proper order that God has established. You women... And we're going to note they were actually doing something specific. This isn't a blanket statement of never to speak. Be silent in what you're doing. Why? Because it's causing disorder in the church. Now, I find it interesting. You don't have people crying out saying, I can't believe God told those people speaking in tongues to be silent. I can't believe God told those people who were prophesying to be silent. How dare God tell women to be silent? I mean, it's like, well, wait a second. If we keep it in the context, it's like each one of these, God is saying silence because of disorder. And so the first reason that it's a problem is because it's taken out of context 
and people are kind of missing the point. But the second reason is because there's a misunderstanding of really what Paul is saying here. So first, a lot of people misunderstand uh, what was going on within that culture, uh, and which is the specific thing that these women were doing. And the second thing is this word translated speak uh, does not really give a full meaning of what the original Greek word means. So let me try to explain what Paul is you know, declaring here, and I think hopefully afterwards, for those of you who might have had a problem with this verse, uh, you probably won't um, after this. So, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Now, first of all, remember chapter 11, okay? Paul specifically gives directions to how women should pray and how women should prophesy. So he clearly believes that within a church service, women have the privilege of speaking, and not just speaking, but speaking something that is very important. They can pray and they can prophesy. So he is not by any means saying, women, just be completely silent, never say anything. Your voice is not valued in this church. You should never speak. That is not what he's communicating. That is what people have concluded that he's communicating, but it is definitely not. In verse chapter 11, he has clearly laid the groundwork that, you know, I allow women to pre- to uh, prophesy, to pray publicly in a church meeting. So that's something that we need to understand. Now, also, it's interesting that this Greek word that Paul uses, translated speak, uh, was used in a couple different ways in that culture. Alan Redpath, he's a great pastor and Greek scholar. He shares something about how this Greek word was used. Notice what he says. Paul uses the ancient Greek word leleo, which means to talk question, argue, profess, or chatter. It has nothing to do with prophecy or prayer. It is not public speaking as such. Now, notice within the definition of this word that it means more than just talk, because that's the conclusion. Paul's saying you could never open your mouth, and then, you know, no woman can ever speak. That's not what he's saying. Actually, notice it goes on to say to question, argue, profess, or chatter. Now, in chapter verse 25, Paul lays out what the real issue is, that it's a specific problem. It's not, hey, women speaking is the problem. No, it's a specific time that they're speaking and what they're doing. Notice verse 25 tells us, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now, here's what Paul is revealing, that in the church service, there were women who were interrupting what was going on because they were asking their husbands, what did that guy mean by that? What was he saying by that? And these questions that were going on were interrupting the service. And Paul is saying, hey, if you got a question for your husband, ask it at home. Now, you might think, well, how would that be so interruptive? Because here in our culture, we kind of establish our seating different than they did in the church world then. Here, most wives and husbands sit next to each other, unless they got some problem with one another, but usually they're next to each other. And so if I were to say something and you as a wife were like, what did he mean? And you whisper into your husband's ear, you know, what do you think he meant there? And you whisper back, that's not going to be super distracting. Maybe for the people right next to you, it would be. But within that culture, they sat differently. You see, they adopted what the the Jews had done, because most of the church planners, if you remember in the book of Acts, were Jewish, and in the Jewish synagogue, which was basically their church service before it changed from Saturday to Sunday and the church is established, they broke it up like this, all women on one side, all men on the other. Uh, They were very segregated in that, and so when they first established churches, they kind of kept that same way in which things were done, because they felt like that's the way that God wanted it, and so now imagine this, there's my wife, Jenny, 
and I'm over here, and she has a question. She's not whispering in my ear. She's shouting now, hey, Matthew, what is this person saying? I don't get it. Now, obviously, if she did that right now, that would be a huge distraction within this service. Uh, and so this is what Paul is dealing with. Of you know, There's these ladies who are shouting over to their husbands because they don't get it, and many of them were Gentiles. So you know, the Jews who were raised in the synagogue, they learn, you know what? You don't do that. You just be quiet, and you wait till you get home. These Gentiles are coming in. They don't have a clue. They've never been raised in this. They're just kind of segregated from their husband, and they're just like, I don't get that. Hey, honey, what does he mean? Uh, and so you can see, hey, this was a problem. This was something that was causing a disorder to happen within that church service. And so he's not saying, hey, ladies, you can never speak. He's saying, ladies who are over here, who have husbands over there, hey, if you need to ask a question, wait till you get home and ask a question. It is not orderly for you to shout to him in the middle of the service and interrupt it. Just like it's not right for someone with tongues to speak at the wrong time. Just like it's not right for someone with prophecy to speak at the wrong time. The thing here is order in the way in which you take the time to speak what you want to speak. And so he's not saying, women, you can never say anything. Women, you have no place to speak in the church. That's not taught in scripture. So I hope that helps uh, with any confusion that you might have had uh, with that particular passage. Well, now, Paul, he knows some people are going to contend with him. You're telling a lot of people to be quiet, Paul. People don't like to be told to be quiet. So now he's going to say this to those who might contend with him. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Paul wants them to understand because, you know, I'm sure there's people today too, they're contending with Paul. How dare you say this? I can speak in tongues whenever I want or I can do this or I'll speak whenever I want as a woman in church or whatever it may be. There are those who are contentious towards what he's just said. And so he wants to make first really clear to the Corinthians, where did the word of God originally come from? Did it come from you to me or me to you? Well, he was the one who planted the church. It came from Paul to them. But even more significantly, he says, you know, if you're a prophet or you think you're spiritual, for those of you in the church, you know, you're the spiritual one, great. Then you need to acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. This isn't Paul's opinion. This is what God's opinion is. This is what God is saying to you. So you can't just say, well, yeah, Paul just doesn't like this group, or Paul is chauvinistic, or Paul is this or that, which a lot of people have done. No, this is what God says. And if God says it, we need to believe it, and we need to put it into practice. And so he's kind of just targeting those who would kind of blow off you know, what he has to say as just his opinion. He wants to make very clear, no, that is not the case. And he concludes by saying this in verses 39 and 40. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So once again, Paul is saying, if you are doing, if you are going to desire a gift, desire gifts that edify. That those are the most important. Make sure that's your heart. Make sure that's what you uh, focus on. Don't forbid tongues. Don't miss what I've been saying here in this chapter. Don't tell people, well, tongues are bad. You can never do it. No, just make sure they do it properly in the proper order, understanding if it's not interpreted, it doesn't profit. And Paul's last words sum up what he's been saying. Let all things be done decently and in order. You know, God wants that. 
He wants the service of people together to be decent and in order so that we can maximize our benefit from that time. And so everything we do should be decently and in order, especially when we seek to uh, exercise spiritual gifts, because when things get disorderly, people are not edified and blessed. And so the eighth and final principle that Paul wants us to understand when it comes to spiritual gifts is the proper function. The proper function of spiritual gifts is to use them in an orderly way so that everyone is edified. So in this section on spiritual gifts, chapters 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, you know, as we noted, he mentions spiritual gifts. He doesn't really go into detail about all the intricacies about them. What he does do is give us these great eight vital principles. And if we will hold on to these principles and use these principles when exercising spiritual gifts, then guess what? We are going to do it the way that God has told us to. So we need to judge if the person is glorifying, testifying, and exalting Jesus and how they exercise their gift. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives each gift, and he gives them as he wills. The purpose of the gifts is to profit the church. The body of Christ only functions properly when all spiritual gifts are unified together, and we understand the body needs more than just what we can offer. Each one of our gifts is necessary for the body of Christ to function as God has designed it to. Without love, our spiritual gifts are nothing and will profit nothing, so love must be used with each gift and pursued more than spiritual gifts. The heart we should have for spiritual gifts is to edify and profit others. And the proper function of spiritual gifts is to use them in an orderly way so that everyone is edified. Keep these things in mind. You know, as you're moving forward and you feel like God has given you a gift, if you can do these principles, then this is such an important thing to actually exercise spiritual gifts the right way. Now, today is Father's Day. And you know what? Fathers have a very important role. You know, God has called the men to be the spiritual heads of the home, to spiritually lead, not just to practically lead and be the provider. Those are things that God wants us to be as well. And a lot of men do that well, but neglect the spiritual side. And especially in the father role, we're told something in Ephesians 6, 4, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know, this is a huge responsibility. Fathers, He's given us. He says, you know what? I want you to train up your children in the ways of the Lord, that you make that effort to help your children grow in their knowledge of Jesus. First come to a relationship with Jesus, and as they do, then grow in their relationship with Jesus. But that comes down to us as fathers. It doesn't mean that mothers don't play a part in that, but ultimately as fathers, we are the ones that God has said, I've given you the ultimate responsibility to be the spiritual leader in your home. And you know what? It's hard. This is one of the most difficult roles that God has given. A lot of fathers are falling really short in this. And so I just want to take some time right now as we close. Let's just pray for our fathers here, earthly fathers. And one of the main things we want to pray is that we would become more like our heavenly father, the one who is perfect, the one who does it perfectly, that we would become more like him in the way in which we father our children. And so I think one of the best things you can do for fathers on Father's Day is to pray for them because we need it. You know, we all fall short in this area as fathers and we need prayer. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do this. And so I just want to take a little time if you want to pray specifically for your father or for just fathers in general, then uh, let's just do that and close in that way, uh, and then we'll finish like that.